Hello, and welcome to New People, New Ways, a podcast in partnership with Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions United Methodist that explores new ways of being church through the stories and insights of scholars and practitioners alike. I'm Piper Ramsey Sumner, a layperson and cultivator of Fresh Expressions for the Florida Conference. And I'm Michael Adam Beck, and I'm the director of Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions United Methodist. And today we are joined by Andres Perez Gonzalez. Uh, Andres is a Latinx fellow at Duke Divinity School, Duke in the house, everybody, and the founder of a bilingual Latino Latina faith community called Brazos Abiertos. Forgive me if I got that wrong. UMC based in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, he was born and raised in Northeast Mexico. And Andres lived most of his life in the city of Monterey. Before moving to North Carolina, he lived in Vancouver, Canada, where he attended grad school and served as a worship and discipleship pastor. He enjoys hanging out with his wife and kids, listening to unhealthy amounts of music. I'll give you amen on that, brother. And following <laughs> soccer highlights on his phone because he doesn't have time to actually watch soccer games anymore. <laughs> So <laughs> thanks for being with us, friend. Awesome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I wonder, do they play soccer as much as they do like baseball? Because here in America, I can't understand mm -hmm. baseball fans because they have like a game every day, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a big baseball. I should be because it's like that was my grandparents kind of like big thing was baseball. Um, and in Mexico, mm -hmm. baseball is still kind of like a thing, uh, but it's more like you get free tickets and you go to the stadium rather than soccer where everyone's like fighting to get tickets and stuff. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. So um, our first question, who is Andres Perez Gonzalez? All right. Uh, I'll try to give you the short version. Um so yeah, my name is Andres. I'm 30, turning 34 years old this year. I was born in Monterrey, which is a city in Northeast Mexico. It's a, it's a big city. It's like 7 million people. Last time I checked, um, it's really hot and it's, it's awesome. It's a really cool place. Um, it's really close to the border, but not a border town. So it feels like a border town, but it's like removed far away from it enough it's like a two hour straight shot to Texas. Um, so everyone has a tourist visa and people go there shopping all the time. They don't really have to anymore because of the internet, but they still kind of like, it's a thing where you cross the border to get Wendy's or go to target that kind of, that kind of place very influenced by American culture. So everyone learns English like since they're very young, because if you want to make it in business, you have to cross the border and make business over there. So, we're, we're, there's an intersectionality to it that I've recently kind of discovered. Um, it doesn't feel like Mexico City, but it also doesn't feel like Texas. And we often refer to Texas as, as like Monterey 2.0, like certain parts of it, like San Antonio, Houston, um, you know, McAllen, those kind of Brownsville, those kind of places. But, but yeah, uh, I was born, lived there my whole life until I got married. And then we got married, me and my wife wanted to try something new. And um, I had a theology background that I wasn't really, you know, 
working or exer exercising. I was working as a translator, doing some other stuff. Um, and I said, well, I think I can get a pretty, pretty decent scholarship with, with my background. Let me try. And I applied to a couple of places in the U S and in Canada and, um, Vancouver just sounded like a cool place to try. And they also gave my wife a work permit immediately. So I was like a no brainer, like, oh, we can, we can both work and study. Um, so we moved there and then COVID happened and we were stuck there for like what felt like 10 years. Um, our oldest was born in Vancouver and I graduated from a um, master's in theological studies and thought we were going to stay there for a bit. Um, and then uh, someone connected me to Duke and some of the exciting stuff that's happening at Duke with the Hispanic House of Studies. And we moved. Um, while she was pregnant with our second daughter. So our second was born in Durham, North Carolina. So we have a Mexican-American and a Mexican-Canadian. And yeah, those are retirement plans, essentially. <laughs> it's a bad joke. You get to pick. You can retire in Canada <laughs> or in America. We'll see what the, what the social landscape looks like in 20 years. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's great. Well, it's so interesting, too, because you move from one big city to another big city. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there's obviously plenty of cultural changes. And then Durham's not known as a big city. But um, so that was probably a little bit different too. getting a taste of the American Southern culture, which is very different than te Southern Texas culture, which is its own thing. For sure. Yeah. And we're actually yeah, we actually, we, we, we're based in Greensboro, which is like an hour away from Durham because that's where I pastor and that's where I'm doing like my field education, I guess you could call it that. Um, but I commute to Durham like three times a week and Greensboro is a little a bit bigger than Durham. It's like 300,000 people. Um, but, but yeah, it's still pretty slow. There's no traffic, which is great. Um, but it does feel different. Like the Southern thing has been interesting to explore and very warm in, in many ways. So it's been cool. In some other ways, it's just been kind of wild to walk into Walmart and you see all these Jesus like t-shirts and, um, you know, that kind of stuff that we just didn't see in like post-Christian Vancouver or, or Mexico is very Catholic, but still you wouldn't see that kind of like, Oh, walking to a CVS, I guess I need a Bible today. Um, <laughs> and they have stands and stuff like we were, we we're not, that, that took us off guard a bit, but it's been, it's been cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find that so interesting because I've, you know, grew up in, in North Texas and then lived in um, and in Oklahoma. Oklahoma's like that as well. It's very super. Everybody's Christian. It's like shocking to not meet a Christian in a lot of spaces. Um, mm -hmm. And then moved to Colorado, which was very different. Denver, you know, very I feel like maybe there was probably similar with that kind of post-Christian sense. And then I moved to Tallahassee, which is North Florida, which is basically Southern Georgia. And so I get got a little bit of taste of mm -hmm. that as well, those jumping around, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. So how, yeah, yeah. how has that yeah, transition been for with, uh, with you and your wife and with uh, specifically, too, with your ministry, going to all of mm -hmm. these different places, Mexico and then Canada and then now North Carolina? Yeah, it's been it's been wild um, in in many ways, and we have we have learned a lot about ourselves and about our faith. Um, we always felt like in in Mexico, which is a more traditional type of culture, at least in the Northeast, uh, it's it's very Catholic, and there's like a 
a small Protestant, growing Protestant population, but even the Protestant population is still very conservative. And we always felt like the 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 odds ones out or however you would say that, like we, we felt like the we're in the limits of what was right and wrong. Um, and we're often felt very liberal in those spaces. And then we moved to Canada and we're like, oh, we're actually not as liberal as we thought we were. We're very much within the limits of orthodoxy. And that was a big like, oh, we can do church and still wrestle with our faith and still not be sure about certain things. And um, we landed. I I needed a job when I got there because didn't realize that rent was going to be so expensive. So I just knocked on a couple of churches. I, I could do the worship thing. And we ended up getting uh, embraced by a small church community that was just very warm and loving and also revitalizing and kind of changing. They, they had realized they were going to die and were doing like a lot of work to get things moving again. Um, and we were embraced there as we came and allowed to do ministry while wrestling with different things. And um, I don't want to say deconstructing because it's such a, a loaded word now, but basically deconstructing and, and at a more reconstructing stage at that point. Um but yeah, it was it was it was very cool, and we have a lot of friends and family there. Well, adopted family, and um, then moving to to Greensboro, and and also entering a space like Duke, which is also super dynamic and and interesting, and in how it moves and works and breathes, um, has been very cool. Um, we are at a stage as a young family where I think we need the space that we have right now in a place like North Carolina. So it's been good as a family. It's been great. Um, in terms of ministry, when I was, uh, during my last year in Vancouver, I started doing pulpit supply for a small Hispanic community. And I hadn't preached in Spanish in like three years at that point. And just preaching in Spanish again was really messing me up because, um, I don't know, I guess it does something to you preaching your heart language. And I started feeling like a nudge towards um, that specific immigrant community. Because in, in Vancouver, I worked a lot with um, um, an Asian population, especially in South Vancouver, that's very strong. And our, the church where I was working that was uh, essentially a German church had had served liturgies in only German for like 30 years of their lives. And they switched, probably getting that wrong. But they were basically becoming Asian. And I was, as a discipleship pastor, kind of building bridges between between the two cultures. Um, but then working with the Hispanic population again, that just started doing something in me. And, and I started feeling a nudge towards that. And then when I got the call from from Duke and, and a joint call from the UMC, do you want to come and work with the with the Hispanic community? Uh, there was It was like a no-brainer. Like, yeah, this is what I've been feeling. A strong um, nudge towards and... And yeah, transitioning into kind of like those conversations has been has been great. I guess in in many ways it feels fresh, and and I'm excited about what we're doing. So yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit about how did Brazos um, Abuertos UMC come to be? How how did you get started, and kind of where is it today, and what makes it unique? Yeah, um, I guess how it started was. It was a joint invitation to come do more grad school at Duke and to work with the UMC uh, to plant um, a Hispanic, or at that point it was called a Spanish-speaking faith community. And um, the invitation was to come and work at Duke and, and study at Duke while at the same time kind of having my field at, in Greensboro. And Greensboro has a pretty wild uh, Hispanic population. 
the the school system is all over the place. Like you see 20, 22 different ethnicities represented in a classroom, whereas a lot of the churches around the area on the same zip codes, you still see mainly white people and mm -hmm. they're trying to reach out, but but either don't have the tools or the proper knowledge of how to build those bridges yet. And there's a lot of what we call in Spanish asistencialismo, which is basically like, um, it's like a deeper concept. It's not charity, but it feels like it. It's like you're helping, you're invested in the community, but you're not walking with, you're kind of doing things for so there's a power mm -hmm. dynamic that's still very much at play, whereas I have the power to feed, save, pay your bills, but we're not doing anything to bridge those gaps. Um, so, so Brazos Abiertos came as a, I was given kind of like a free, I don't want to say it was a blank check because it was not, but total freedom to, pl to plant a community in the way that I thought um, was healthy. And I, I guess... I, church planting is an inter, is a concept that I wrestle with. Um, you see like the, the trends and I'm probably going to butcher the trends, but when they say things like out of 10 church plants, seven close in five years, um, it's just not encouraging. You know, like if I were to, if I was, if I was told you can board this plane, but there's a seven out of 10 of them like crash, like why would I want to do that? Um, right. So when I was told like, you can, you let's talk about cultivating community rather than planting a church. I was ready to go. I was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's talk about doing church outside of church and see, see what that looks like. And I guess Brazos Abiertos, the first thing that we, we started wrestling with was the idea of changing that uh, Spanish speaking faith community to bilingual faith community. And that came about as I was doing some research and, and also just deep listening in, in these spaces about how it's, it, it's a crazy number. It's like 18 million of the Hispanics born in the U S no longer consider Spanish their first language. Uh, that number is only growing and, and there's a lot of people kind of caught in that middle. Um, so, so it was a, a lot of creative imagination of thinking, what if we can build a space where both parents can come to church and speak in Spanish and feel free, but also learn English and get better at that. Some of them are here for 20, 30 years and know English and how can their kids come to a space where they can, uh, reclaim their Spanish and reclaim their Hispanicness and their their Latinidad and and rediscover that. Can can church be a place where those two things can 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 be bridged? Um, and and I think that was that was where I got really excited about this. And uh, it's still a new community. It's fairly young. We we kind of launched it in Pentecost um, with a big meal and a service, a bilingual service. And right now we we have essentially three arms um, or three ways of connection. We have this thing that we call in between liturgies, which is uh, bilingual services. These are pretty big and there's a meal and then there's a, there's a bilingual service, which is sort of like a traditional service, but we'll, we sing in both languages. We read in both languages. And, and that's an opportunity for people who maybe don't feel as comfortable walking into a space to just be, check it out, come in with no strings attached and just connect in some, some, some level. And then people who come to those services, if they want to, they get invited to something that we call life together or be in conjunto, which is smaller, um, group settings where we sit in, in a circle and we talk about our stories. And sometimes there's a bit of music. Sometimes we, we pray, sometimes we read scripture, but the idea of that space is mostly what if we allow ourselves to, to hear our stories and be transformed by our, by our stories, uh, centering those stories in a way that's not utilitarian but in a way that's vulnerable and and that's where people get invited to kind of 
take that second step of not only knowing people, but, but daring to be known by others. And the third thing that we just launched recently is a, a pickup soccer tournament, which is my, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say my favorite, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have a, we have a really big backfield at our church that we don't really use. Um, and I mean, our church as the anchor church that I'm working with, which is Gear for College United Methodist Church. Um, and yeah, we, I just, I just thought this is a cool place to, to do soccer. And I posted an invitation in a bunch of Facebook groups and, and we have only done it once, but 15 people showed up and then we have all our youth and some people from our church show up. It was all in all like a 50 person uh, gathering and we just played soccer. Um, and it was awesome. And everyone left their phone numbers and said, tell us when you're doing this again. And I think what was more cool about that was a conversation that that kind of sprung afterwards where it was like, yeah, that was a cool meeting. When are we going to do the Jesus thing, though? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, when, when are we going to do like the the, the service? And I'm like, no, there's no service. We're not tricking people to come to play soccer. And then like, bam, here's Jesus. Like, we're just, we're loving people into community. We're creating a space where we can become friends. And that's going to be, that's, that's the long game. But some of these people may never enter our church spaces and that's fine. And some of these people may become really close friends and, and walk with us and, you know, get baptized, get discipled, all that. But we're not forcing, we're not forcing Jesus on people. We're just, we're just loving people into community and creating, creating a space where they can come and play. Um, so that's where we're at. And we have other avenues that we want to explore, but, but yeah, again, like, um, Brazos Abiertos is this idea of being the open arms of Jesus to our community, a place where you can belong before believing and a place where you can be embraced rather than just welcomed. And, and that's kind of what we're running with. And I don't know, man, the jury's still out. <laughs> this is going to work. I think it's working, but, but I'm excited to, to try different things out and, and learn as we go. Yeah, there, there is so much for us to learn from what you just shared. And thank you. I, I have some follow-up questions. Um, it sounds like you've kind of just instinctually created what we would call in the Fresh Expressions movement, like a blended ecology of church built in where you have multiple modes of church and you're like launching that way right from the start, which mm -hmm. is so much better than trying to, you know, start with inherited and then move into that. But a couple things that I think might be helpful for some of our listeners is you named like the tendency of primary, like Florida, we're a very similar context, very diverse state, not super great situation politically, um, but uh, churches, United Methodist churches, not diverse at all. Um, and then in actually in the disaffiliation kind of things that have happened, that even became less diverse in some ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you named how, people in these very homogeneous, mostly white congregations can want to do ministry two and four and maybe even have a good heart. And they've even worked through some of their racism and their, their mm -hmm. hearts in the right place, but actually do harm because there's a power imbalance and there's not the shared kind of leadership power way. And there's not really a listening uh, kind mm -hmm. of time to rebuild relationship first. So if you could give some pointers to the many United Methodist congregations are in this situation to how not to do that, right? How not to cause harm and, and do, uh, help us, help us think through that. What would you, what pointers would you give? I think the, 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 the two things that we've been wrestling with, um, is the type of, uh, church 
setting that we want to build and 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 kind of like finding the the framework to to do that well and when it comes to like bounded set churches where the cross is in the middle and you have a line and the line kind of decides who's in who's out um that line is so culturally influenced by political ideologies and just the history of nations and even immigrant dynamics that come into play and stereotypes and it's really hard to to mess with the line in in a way that allows for a, a flow of people coming in and out and exploring and wrestling with their faith it's more like a, you're, you're all in right you either buy into christianity or you don't and that makes mission or for a lack of a better word evangelism just really hard because people have to not only convert to Jesus, but assimilate to the culture that that Christian space like holds as their default. So that makes a lot of Hispanics, uh, if I want to become a Christian, I kind of have to drop my, my, my Hispanicness and just become this thing and speak like them and dress like them and talk like them and even wrestle with my faith like them. So, so, so that makes it really hard. And then the other kind of like church um, way of doing church, which is like the fussy set, and and I'm I forget who came up with this stuff. Um, and I know his name's not David Fincher. That's the movie director. But I think it was David Finch. I forget. I'll look it up. But the fussy set where it's like the line's still there, but it's very it's very blurry. So you'll see like a pastor with tattoos, but you'll you'll never see like an LGBTQ person leading worship. Like the line is very much still there, but it's it's blurred, and people are kind of tricked into crossing the line. But then like kind of like people go down on them really hard when they where they question certain things especially about the way that we believe and the way that we do church and kind of like the dogmas within the church um and the third approach which is the one that we're trying to embrace which is like a like a centered set approach or a or jesus centered set approach is like the cross is still in the middle but people are kind of some some people are very close to the cross and are on their way out they were born in the church but are actually exploring something else and are on their way out and some people are really far from the cross from the culture, from the group, but they're actually on their way in and they're being nudged by the Holy Spirit and God is doing something in them. And what we're trying to do is find those people, connect with them, walk with them, build a relationship with them without demanding a response from them. So it's not like I want to help you, but you you have to come to my church meeting or I'm going to feed you, but you have to stay for the service. It's more of Jesus loved everyone and we want to love everyone. And we have this space that we call Brazos Abiertos where we can actually, we think we can do that better. Give it a, give it a go. Come and see. And you tell us if it's working or if it's not working. And, and we'll, we're, we're going to be humble enough to hear you and move with you. And you get a say in building this space as much as I get a say, even though um, I'm the one who's kind of like leading it, I still want to be led or lead with you. So, so there's that relational approach, which makes my team um or the way that my team is growing very organic because people who come in are immediately invited to take a part in the decision making process and take a part in how they think the meetings should be done so so i think church becomes more dialogical and more relational than than when you have a sort of like a really bounded set of a dynamic where this person's here this other person's here and then everyone just attends church so so yeah it takes time it's very creative it, it's not easy 
And, and then people ask, but where's the line? You know, we need to have a line. Like we need to have some set of like, what are, and, and I think this is where being United Methodist just, it, it gives you a really cool way to do it because you know, the, the things that Wesley said about do do good, don't hurt other people and love God like that, that to me is a very, that's, that's a very cool way to think about what's important when you're doing ministry. And, and the first two, I think is where, where those dynamics that you're talking about, Michael, kind of come into play. We do a lot of good. And sometimes we're so caught up on doing good that we're actually hurting others while we're doing it. But mm-hmm. we're so caught up on, oh, this is, this is, this is, this is the way this church gives. This is the way the church volunteers. And you don't realize that even though you're feeding someone um, big picture, the way that society moves, you're, you're just enabling a dynamic that is wrong. So it, it does take some humility and stepping back and saying, well, we've done this charity work for 30 years, but is it actually helping uh, long term? Is it actually creating um, a better or more just uh, environment? Should we as a church participate in these dynamics, even though long run, we're hurting the community, even though we're helping three or four or five or 10 people? But they're not 10 Hispanics living in Greensboro anymore. There's thousands and we can't even really count because a lot of them are undocumented. So it, it, it requires humility in, in understanding that we haven't done this well and yet that we have an opportunity to do it better. Yeah. Yeah. So it's both crushing and hopeful. I think, uh, at least that's the way that I see it. Yeah. I think I see the sense of, um, this idea of the open arms, it's not just, to me, it feels like it's not just the open arms of Christ being loving and accepting, but it's also, will you come with open arms in this space? Yep. Can we come with our open arms so that we can be willing to say, is this the way that we've always done it the best way? Can mm-hmm. I loosen my grip a bit and yep. allow for something new? Can I let my opinions and what I think is you know, the truth and what I think is the way things should be, can I loosen my grip on that and allow for something new and something beautiful to come about through these relationships and through what we discovered together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the first sort of wake up call that I had was early on. We we had had a really big meeting and a really good response. And I'm talking like 60 Hispanic people came to our church for the first time. And then we we're going to do a small group meeting. And I was ready to craft like a really crazy non-church-like liturgy that was going to be fun and entertaining and just trying to do my best to like put all those dumb seminary years into practice. And I asked someone who was going to come, what, what would you want to do? You know, I have all these ideas and plans for your life, but what, what is something maybe you're interested in doing? And this person said, can we take communion? I was just like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, we're actually not allowed to take communion in the Catholic church because we're for whatever reason, not, not welcome in those spaces anymore, but we're very Catholic and we'd love to be served communion and just to partake. Do you think we can do that? I'm like, Mm. man, that, that was left field for me. Like it was, and it was sort of like, a, I don't know. It was just backwards in my head. Like, that's not what I thought this meeting was going to be, but I guess we're doing communion. Like let's just, let's do communion. And um, yeah. And I think just being humble and listening to what people think and, and want to do and, and also having the courage to lead them and challenge them in, in ways that that make the term safe space feel more like a sacred space, um, is it takes a lot of work and, and it's hard, but I think it's what at least we feel called to do uh, here in Greensboro. Yeah, you know, in Fresh Expressions, we really emphasize that centered set you know, 
um, belonging before believing kind of way of being church together. And then we have this like journey that's kind of, it can sound formulaic, but it's really helpful actually that we listen, we love and serve, we build relationships, we explore discipleship, church takes shape out of that listening, relationship mm-hmm. building, loving and serving. And then the whole thing kind of multiplies, which it just sounds as, as I was listening to like how your church is actually forming and kind of unfolding. I don't know if you're, if you're even familiar with that journey, but it sounds like you've kind of followed a similar process, which is so cool about it. Cause I, I hear so many church planners and people in different contexts that they follow a similar kind of uh, way of going about forming community with people. Yeah. And, and this is where, um, when I met Luke, um, Edwards, who I think you guys have had on the podcast before yeah, and heard yeah. about what he was doing and just, I, I honestly didn't read the book. I, he, he, I did get the book, but I just I put it on a shelf. But then later on, I went back to it and I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what, what I think we're trying to do. And it was very helpful in that sense because uh, I guess it made us feel like others, other, we weren't crazy. You know, others others get this too. Others are feeling this thing. This is this is not just us trying to be creative. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit and we, we get to do it with others. So, so yeah, we I've done things where I've realized later on, like, yeah, this is a fresh expression. Um, even though we weren't really trying to do it, it just, it, it has sprung naturally. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been cool to connect with Luke and, and to hear about what, what even you guys are doing in Florida. And we feel, I think just some type of kindred spirit there. Yeah. So when you, when you talk, you shared about, um, you know, the soccer gathering and, and, um, you know, you're building community there and, and, and forming relationships. Um, and, and then you gave this other story about like somebody right in the beginning wanted to do communion. And, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm surprised sometimes by where people are and what they're really longing for. Um, and I've, I've tried to do these little add in things, right? So I don't want to mess up us playing soccer together um, by mm-hmm. saying, all right, Hey, let's have the church part now. But I also don't want to, f- people feel like the next step is they have to come back to the formal church, but kind of what we are doing together is church. And so Mm -hmm. I try to do these little bolt on like, Hey, if anybody wants to come early next week, I'm going to have a little spiritual conversation about like what spiritual practices are sustaining everybody right now or stay after for that. Um, And then invite that kind of spiritual conversation, but try not to mess up the natural organic thing that that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. do you, do you think through and do little like add-ons or how, how do you navigate? Tell us where you see soccer, this gathering could, where it could go maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think I see the, the soccer thing as, as more building relationships and just, I think a lot of people, especially in Greensboro, they have preconceptions about what Protestants are like. Um, and we have that that bridge with like Catholic and Protestant, whereas in places like Duke, they're basically indistinguishable. You know, I'm sitting down with a Catholic friend, I'm sitting down with a Protestant friend, and even though when we talk about Mary, it's going to sound different, we can pretty much share communion and it's fine. But but in in, in Hispanic places, it's it, it does still feel like there's a there's a big wall between Catholics, especially Roman Catholics and Christians or Protestant Christians. And this is a conversation that I've had many times where it's like, uh, are they going to ask us for money? Um, are, 
are we allowed to say that we're Catholic? Like it, it, it basically, it, it's still a different, a difficult space to, to bridge. And soccer just allows me to connect with people in a way that I think church doesn't because people are nervous when they walk into a church that's not Catholic, especially when they hold to that background. And then there's the assimilation thing too, where it's like, well, is it is becoming Christian or Protestant Christian losing my Catholic heritage as a as a Hispanic person? Um, <clears throat> and it actually was one of the conversations that we had on the soccer field. Like, so what are you guys? Um, and I I said something like, you know, we're we're United Methodists, we're ecumenically minded. You <laughs> know, like I have Catholic friends. And at some point I just said, you know, two things like we're never going to ask you for money unless, you know, you want to buy pizzas with us or something. But this is not one of those things where you buy into church or buy into community. You're welcome to come. And second thing, if you ever need anything, I'm here. Um, And that goes from like, I'm sick with COVID and I need food to like, I have a flat tire and, and I need someone to come pick me up. Like, just hit me up. And, and most of the relationships that I built in Greensboro have kind of come about like that. Like it's usually someone comes to my door and says, Hey, I, I heard you're a pastor. I had a panic attack. Can I talk to you? And I'll be like, I just had a panic attack too. Let's talk. Uh, and I think that's the way that the, the community has sprung. So, so yeah, my hope is that people will, will connect and will become friends and we'll start doing life together. And we they will hear about the different things that we we are doing and if some of them feel called to like our smaller groups where we talk about our faith and we talk about our stories i'll i'll surely invite them to that but but i really don't want this to become a thing where it's like you can come play soccer but here's a devotional first um i think we need to trust that people are spiritually hungry that 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 this is god's mission and he's already doing something and Gustavo Gutierrez had this awesome quote, has this awesome quote about seeds of liberation being planted in the community. And the soccer field to me gives me a, a space to find those seeds and just connect with people that might be on their way towards a community or might be longing for a community like the one that we can we can provide. Not everyone will join. That's OK. Um, I think it, part of that journey is, is acknowledging that not every person that we're going to cross is going to become uh a disciple and that's fine, but we're still going to witness and we're still going to open that door. And if people want to come through, I'm going to trust that people actually do want to do that and give them credit for, for having a spiritual hunger, which I think we often don't. We feel like we have to convince people to want to know things about God. And, and I think a lot of them already have those questions. A lot of them are already wrestling with those questions and, and we, we want to honor that, that hunger. So, yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of the the seeds of liberation because I think that's something I like to reinforce when we talk about fresh expressions is that you're a fresh expression that might come to be doesn't need to be this epic world changing you know eventually become this huge mega thing where there's one in every neighborhood mm-hmm. you know it can and I think it maybe should be small yeah. and be okay with staying small because communities are stronger when people are able to connect on, on all of these different levels. Mm -hmm. And when there's a huge group or when there's this big kind of like epic goal in mind, you can lose sight of what it's really about, which is um, those individual relationships and how you can love people where they're at and how you can walk with them. Yeah. Um, And so I love that idea. It's like, maybe this soccer thing will just be something that that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, and it stays in your community and it's with just this one group of kind of of core people. And I think that's great. And that sounds to me like 
an incredible, um, you know, way to spend your time and energy and um, investing in people's lives, even just in these, what some would say, small ways. Yeah. You know? And I think it's part of, of acknowledging the beauty in the ordinary and, and I guess fighting back into some fighting against some of that sort of church culture in the South where everything has to be extraordinary. Everything has to be mega. Everything has to be mm -hmm. like so cool. It's like, no, we can be, we can be low key. We can be ordinary. It can just be a ball and some goals and flower on the floor to say where the field, you know, to delineate the field. And that, that, that can be enough. Um, so, so I, I love the idea of this being an ordinary type of community where, where maybe extraordinary things will happen. Maybe they won't, but but the biggest thing is we are together, we're walking together and we're finding each other. And yeah, mm -hmm. the other thing that I think has been important with the soccer thing is we actually, this initiative came about with the youth pastor of Guilford College United Methodist Church, who has a really cool youth group that is becoming more diverse. And they come and join us too. And it's an opportunity for them to rub shoulders with other kids and other people who don't talk like them or dress like them or look like them but to actually share a space. And that to me is, is good planting because what I, what I really hope is that Brazo Abierto is a bridge into a multi-ethnic church. Eventually. I really do think the, the future of the church is, is, is multi-ethnic is multilingual is multi-generational. And I think the soccer place is a, the soccer field is a great place to start cultivating that, that culture in our church. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, one of one of my greatest teachers in um, the Fresh Expressions movement has been the base ecclesial communities uh, in Latin America, and the work of Leonardo Boff, especially his book Ecclesiogenesis, and trying to name, you know, what's happening there. Um, and it's interesting because when white folks talk about the Fresh Expressions movement, they talk about the genesis of it, like in England in two thousand four, and the church. Uh -huh. Mission shaped church for it's like uh, actually this has been happening a version of this not under that language house right but right. since the 80s and 90s this has been happening and the funny thing for me is like some of the most extreme outside the box examples of it come from the Catholic Church mm -hmm. who are just mm -hmm. like we don't have priests so we're gonna yeah. start churches in homes and fields and wherever yeah. um, and there's so much we can learn from that. Um, have you, has that influenced you at all in what you're doing? 100%, man. I'm so excited that you, you, <laughs> you called both and like, um, that's awesome. That, yeah, I feel represented. <laughs> uh, but yeah, 100%. I think one of the most important books has been this book called The Gospel in Solentiname, which is a book by a priest called Ernesto Cardenal, who was a Nicaraguan. Um, and this, this dude, he was just, he was having these conversations with farmers and just people from all around the place and the conversations were getting wild. And at some point they started recording the conversations on a, like a tape recorder and then tra they transcribed them. And now it's like my favorite commentary to look at whenever I'm preaching on a passage or just want to think deeper about a passage. Cause he just, he just goes wild. It's like they read a Jesus story and then everyone just starts talking and it feels so organic. It's like, like a podcast before podcasts were done, you know, like you're just reading into people's thoughts about certain things and just reading about how that community came about and how it, it, it just from the get go, it was built by hearing each other and really listening to each other and 
and this idea of like a communal exegesis where you're learning about scripture, but you have to do it with others because otherwise it's it's not it's not working. You need to see Jesus through the other. And and that was my essentially when they asked me, what's your plan? I was like, this is my plan. I'm going to get people in a room together and we're going to talk and we're going to trust that something's happening and learn from each other and let scripture be scripture within our community. And and it started with me kind of reaching out to people and saying, can you read the scripture passage to me? Because I want to hear it from your voice. Um, and then people will be thrown off at first, but eventually we started talking and started getting into it. And there's there's actually a really cool story with that book because uh, there's this artist called uh, Carlos Mejia Godoy who wrote a thing called the Nicaraguan Peasant Mass or the Misa Campesina Nicaragüense. And it's this brilliant liturgy about Jesus showing up in the fields as a worker who gets pissed off when he doesn't get paid on time or he wants to buy ice cream, but they don't have like the syrup that goes on the ice cream. And, you know, he's, he, and they say like, we've seen you, Jesus, like we've seen you on the roads. We've seen you working on the streets. Like we've seen you in line to get paid. Like you are there, you are with the worker because you are the immigrant God. You are the worker God. You get your hands dirty with us. And we're doing a celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month built around that liturgy and singing some of those songs. And he was inspired to write that liturgy while sitting down with the community in Solentiname in this small island in Nicaragua. So it was like a full circle for me. I didn't realize that those two things were connected, but eventually kind of like was so inspired by that journey and by that story. And I am in no ways uh, a master in, in that topic. Like I'm still learning a lot about it. I may have butchered some of the details there, but it's a beautiful liturgy that I listen to often. Uh, it's on, it's even on Spotify now, so you can actually hear the recording from seventies and the books are on Amazon and you can buy them, but, but it's an awesome tool. And that, that was kind of like our backbone. Like, this is what we want to do. Can we do this in Greensboro? Can we do this in modern day North Carolina? Uh, I think we can. And, and that's been the, that's been the journey. Awesome. Man, I'm blowing off. You guys are going to have to edit this stuff. <laughs> oh no, we don't, we're not okay. editing this. <laughs> this is great. Oh, I love that. That's what I love so much about, about, liberation theology is that like you said like god is the is the immigrant immigrant god god's the god of the oppressed god's with um ordinary people living our ordinary mm -hmm. lives um which that's what i was thinking of when i was talking about you know these these small moments we can have these um little moments of holiness that's why i think john wesley when he was talking about holiness it wasn't like um always this instant thing. And all of a sudden you're like shining bright, holy for the rest of your life. But it's, we get these little chances. Um, sanctification can come in, in um, these certain moments. And I think that's the same with, um, with liberation and with even just how God shows up mm -hmm. that God, I mean, Jesus was an ordin the most ordinary guy ever, yeah. right? He came he was um, argue, you know, working class for the world that he lived in and um, in the small town, you know, all of these things. And so we can see that reflected in our mm -hmm. lives. And I think that's such a, such a great thing. And it can get lost in the church where it's about the big stuff. And, yeah. um, we look, you know, I always think like looking at Christian history, I went to Europe this summer and I was walking through these big cathedrals and I was just thinking about how much money, especially, mm -hmm. you know, 400 years ago, I was like, the church was spending so much money on these buildings and just thinking about the humble origins of, of you know what the new testament what the church was really like when it first started like man well how do we get so like off base yeah, i guess no. you know 
that's very much an aside just one thought i love that and and i think you're onto something there and i think i've been as encouraged as i've been challenged by those things um reading scripture Mm -hmm. when you're walking with the community and realizing that this is more about them than it is about me um i i'm mexican I was born there, but I'm privileged in so many ways. I study at Duke. I'm I'm doing grad school like again, like you know we and and that privilege um, is is in me whether I whether I like it or not. And and I do have an in into the community, but but there are some spaces where I am even not allowed or where I get greeted with "Who are you?" and "Why do you look white?" <laughs> but mm-hmm. but I think um, yeah, and and this kind of happened. In, on last Christmas that we had a breakfast with a bunch of Hispanic women and um, one of my fellow co-workers asked me if, if I could say something about scripture and I didn't pr- plan anything because I didn't have any time so I just stood there and we read the story about Mary and Joseph and they're getting you know they're looking for for a place to stay and it just dawned on me like did Mary not get a room because there was actually no room or did she not get a room because she didn't have a social security number? Like, mm-hmm. was she a second class citizen? Was she not allowed into the space because they actually didn't have, like, this was a census. Like they should have been prepared to welcome thousands of people into this space. And then she wasn't allowed. And that was one of those kind of like theological moments where people just opened their eyes and said, Oh, this, this story is about me. This, this story speaks to me. Like, we are, they are like us more than they are like them. And, and I hate the, the, them, us and them line, but I do think immigrant communities and marginalized communities need to hear this. This message is more about them than it is about us. And, and that should shake us to the core and really challenge the way that we're doing mission. Um, so, so yeah, that, that has been just challenging in some ways and, and encouraging in others in both and I guess. Yeah, I, I wonder, as, as you were sharing about kind of this ecosystem that you've created, basically, and not trying to fit this your thing into this whole Wesleyan framework or whatever, but there is some genius in like early primitive Methodism where he had the, you know, waves of grace, prevenient, justifying, sanctifying mm-hmm. grace. And then you had like social constructs for each each of those, like where people were kind of moving through. So a very, very small portion of that was about getting people to church, you know, like mm-hmm. if they went to Anglican communion on Sundays, that was great. And he encouraged that. And that was part of it. But mo- the 90% of the energy was like creating societies where the only requirement for membership was just that you wanted to be there. Uh, that, yeah. you know, people who were ready to take steps into like discipleship and ask those kind of questions, there was a group for that, that they could move into mm-hmm. that. Um, but yep. the prevenient grace space could be, you know, just getting together, playing soccer, building relationships. But most churches don't have any of those constructs. It's all the the um, bounded set that you described. It's just mm-hmm. here's the gate. You got to know the code to get in. And it's our mm-hmm. way. And it's got to be. So that's just been completely lost in, in, in uh, modern Methodism, I think, in some ways. And it sounds like you're actually look a lot more like, if you will, in my opinion, primitive methodism out in the um, in the midst of the people creating community uh with getting people back to church you know being a very small or maybe not even something you're thinking about at all yeah and even like bounding church to just the four walls right like just really buying into this idea that church is just this and not that 
um, I think is, is harmful. And I remember the, I, I don't remember a lot of my seminary years, but I went to one of the two United Methodist seminaries in Mexico and they would talk about how American missionaries had done mission in Mexico when they founded the, the, you know, the first United Methodist in Monterrey and other, in other towns. And, and it was always the same, like hospitals first, then schools, then churches. And that just stuck with me. And I don't know if, where my prof got that from, but the idea of that's not charity. Building a hospital is not charity. That's that's deeply caring for the community. Creating a school mm. where your kids are going to attend with other kids that are not like you, that's not charity. That's actually deciding to walk with people and to put your kids in the same classroom as other people that are not like you. And then creating a church where we can come and celebrate the things that are happening in our community is a whole different concept from building a church where you just, you're either in or out, you buy into a membership or you don't. And then if you come, well, we might help you. Like that's so different. And so I think that's the way that we see church in Brazos Abiertos. It's, it's a space where we can come and celebrate what's already happening outside that we can celebrate how we've encountered Jesus in those spaces outside. And then we can also encounter him here. We're together and we're worshiping and praying and we're doing all the things. But I think the things that matter are mostly happening uh, outside of those four walls. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I want to, now I want to think a little bit about, we live in this, um, what people would call kind of a post-Christian society, which I think you definitely felt in Vancouver um, and maybe mm -hmm. in a different sense um, growing up in Monterey and then now here um, in the U.S. But um, I'm going to combine this question about the, the post-Christian and about what you think the future of the church will look like. And what is your hope mm -hmm. for the future of the church? Yeah, um... I see post-Christendom as, as an exciting opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. Not everyone feels that way. Um, I, I get the argument, like I've heard it before. Uh, I've heard the cries of, we're not the center of society anymore. This is so crushing and so bad and so depressing. I honestly think it kind of gives us a, a fair shot to try it again and to actually build communities that are that are gospel centered and share actual good news which is just something that you know if we are, if we really do have the best news ever the news that god is with us then we shouldn't have to convince people to come to church people should just be excited to hear those news and i think post christianism kind of like resets the conversation in a really cool way um i I think post-Christianism happens in North Carolina in different spaces. I don't think it's a post-Christian society as of yet, but I do think that younger generations are very much influenced by it and are going to inherit a pluralist and, and post-Christian society in, in many, many different ways. And just the way that society is working and, and moving towards it's, it's a very post-Christian space. And yeah, we saw that in Vancouver a lot. Um, in Vancouver, people didn't come to church because they felt that they needed to, or they were guilted into coming to church. They just came because they were curious. Um, in Vancouver, I didn't see people who were um, deconstructing their faith, but still very much centered in their whole identity around the things that they either accept or reject about church. I saw people who actually didn't care. They were like, Oh, you're, you like Jesus. You like talk about Jesus. That's cool. I don't, that doesn't really keep me up at night, whether he is God or he isn't. Um, and I was like, man, I'm so, I am so evangelical. I just, I just traded my conversion story for my deconversion story, but it's pretty much the same coin. Whereas in, in places like Vancouver, it's a whole different coin. Um, it's a whole different game. So, so yeah, I think 
post-Christendom has has kind of like set the church in this state of emergency and panic of we're losing our place in society. And there's so many things happening in a Sunday morning, and now we have to compete to get people's attention. We have to make church more fun than the soccer field on Sunday or than Monday night football or than any other things that are happening. So what do we do? We have to entertain people and we have to have lights and we have to have smoke and we have to have all these different things that will make people feel cool when they come to church. And, and that dynamic I do think is dangerous because it turns clergy into entertainers and it turns church tenders or members or people who are on the periphery into an audience. And it kind of creates this weird dynamic where people come to church expecting um, this is going to be more cool or more fun than whatever's on TV that morning. And it is often not the case. And especially when, and, and, and then that when it gets really interesting, it, we, we barely have space for grief and for pain and for suffering in our churches anymore, because it has to be, you know, a show, it has to keep going. So then, then people who are suffering or who are going through different things, they just kind of fall through the cracks. Like we mentioned them in the prayers of the people, but we don't really have the time to walk through them and have services built around people's grief. And turns out part of life is there's a lot of pain, like a bunch of, it, it's just depressing in so many ways. And church makes that better because other people acknowledge that too. And, and you can cry with them and, and you can also rejoice with them when cool things happen, but it's not all about that. So reg mm -hmm. regarding the future of the church, I've found that the liturgical calendar just so helpful in walking through the calendar and going through those spaces of laments and also those spaces of joy and celebration. And I think the future of the church, um, is rediscovering who we are as we hold to some of those things that maybe we don't think about much anymore as, as is the church calendar or, or as is a certain way of doing liturgy. And I like to think that the future of the church is a very ordinary space where anyone can come in. And when you're, you're, you're just done with competing with, with entertainment culture. I, I like to think of church as a, as a place that is free from that pressure to entertain people and, and free to love people and to embrace people and to walk with people in, in all sorts of ordinary ways. And Wendell Berry has this awesome quote about sharing a spaces. And he said something like, a spiritual community is built when we acknowledge that we have the power to define the limits of a space. And we decide how big, how wide, how open, how, how deep a space is. And I like to think that the Church of the Future is aware of those dynamics and willing to take risks and to try different things and to be wrong and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and not hold to this idea that we have the ultimate way of doing church, but rather rediscovering who we are. So, so to me, post-Christendom is just like a clean slate in that sense. Like, okay, we can, we can try it again. We, his history has judged us. Like the jury's actually out. It's not mm. looking great. Um, <laughs> should the ship sink? Should we let it sink? Maybe. But what if there's life and death? What if we can we can get over ourselves a little bit, stop stop taking ourselves too seriously, and start taking the gospel seriously again, and and put the sermon on the mount in that place that it needs to be? Um, I think cool things can happen. I think cool things are happening in Vancouver, and I think are happening across the nation. Um, and yeah, to me, it is an exciting time to be a, a Hispanic at Duke and a Hispanic minister in Greensboro. And I like to think that the future of the of the church is hopeful. Uh, it's difficult, but it's hopeful. Hmm. Amen.
That's right. So where can people keep up with you online, can see what you're doing at Duke and see what you're doing at Brazos Abiertos? That's a really good question because I am terrible at social media. Uh, <laughs> reminder that I need to hire someone to run our social media stuff. But we have, uh, I guess our Instagram account is uh, most active and you can find us at slash Brazos Abiertos UMC. Um, and that same, that same handle, Brazos Abiertos UMC, we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook. We're going to start using Substack soon because I want to write about things. And we are on Twitter as well, which I refuse to call X, but we are on, in that space too. And yeah, our Instagram account is, is where you can find more about what we're doing. And if you're in Greensboro and you want to connect, you can always just hit me up there. Uh, and, and that'll lead just, that'll lead us to lead you to all the other links that we have, like the link tree stuff is on, is on the Instagram. So, so yeah, that's where we're at. Great. Yeah. So if anybody wanted to have you as a professor at Duke, is that possible? Do you, um, do they go to the, become part of the Latinx house of study? Well, they could, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm probably not going to be teaching anytime soon because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student, but my friend uh, Alma, who I do want to shout out, uh, who just became Dr. Uh, Alma Tinoco Ruiz and is an associate professor at Duke. She, she leads the House of Studies. She's always looking for people to come join us. Um, and you can actually, this is a cool thing too, newly launched Instagram, uh, Instagram handle or Instagram account of La Casa de Estudios Hispanos, which is a Hispanic house of studies on, on Instagram. That's a really good account. And that tells you all about what we're doing uh, at Duke. And it's La Casa DDS. That's the handle. Instagram.com slash La Casa DDS. That's the Hispanic house of studies. Uh, it's a really cool thing. And I think the Latinx fellowship is the most exciting thing at Duke happening right now. And it'll continue to be that way for the next 10 years, at least. Cool. Nice. That's great. Awesome. Well, Andres, thank you so much for being here. This was a wonderful conversation. I'm glad we got to hang out with you. Thank you for having me. This was great. And uh, to those listening, thanks for joining in on this episode of new people, new ways. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with a friend, like, like, review, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. If you want to learn more about Fresh Expressions, check out freshexpressionsfl.org and you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you next time on New People, New Ways.